I don't like to say like this this is the right way. This is the one way we should do it. It's really all about where you are and what you need and what you want to get out of it. It's like there's so many people doing so much interesting work and props you could never hope uh, to talk to all of them about all the projects they've ever done. There's just something innate, you know, in, in human nature to want to gather in groups and experience something together. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Anna Aguilera. On episode 14, Joseph Coda briefly talks about props and puppets. So does Carlos on episode 29. On this episode, we will be talking specifically about props making with Eric Hart. Eric has been building props and effects for theatre, opera, retail display and other industries since 2003. He's a professor in the Stage Properties Program at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Eric also writes about building props and other things. In fact, he has published two books, The Prop Building Guidebook for Theatre, Film and TV, a bestseller, and The Prop Effects Guidebook, Lights, Motion, Sound and Magic. The third, Prop Building for Beginners, will be published in April 2021. He also co-hosts a podcast on prop making. Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You're talking about being like literally self-thought for many things. And we, I guess we all jump on the internet and say, okay, how do I do this thing that I want to do? Yet, you do teach at the university. So <laughs> what's the value and what's the place for informal education and vocational training and professional like graduate or or college kind of education i always say a lot of it depends on where you are and what you need um there are certainly people who do not need a university education either they're not there yet or they're past that point or something like that but uh learning in a in a university first of all because you're you're taking formalized classes that takes out all the guesswork. So if you're if you're somebody who's really good at self-learning, you can like hunt around and find things on the internet and and learn what you need to do. If you're not and you're just kind of starting from scratch, you don't really know like there's, you know, thousands of YouTube videos and which one do you watch and does this person know what they're talking about and and do you even have the background to know like how to integrate that into what you're doing? So like, you know, me, I, I seek out something very specific that I need to know and I find a video and I watch it. But if I was starting from scratch, I mean, I don't know like the whole background of how to approach a prop and what's important about prop building and all that sort of stuff. So working in, in like, uh, getting a formal education in a university, you, you get that, that background and you get it from people who are and have been working in the industry. So you kind of, you know, you get what's important right away. And, you know, the other really valuable thing is that you're with uh, your peers and you're learning alongside your peers. So you're learning how to work with other people, which is, you know, absolutely vital in theater, film, television, all of that. They're collaborative art forms. And if you don't know how to work with other people, then there's only so much you could do, you know, just working by yourself in a shop by yourself. 
So you get that collaborative experience and those peers also become, you know, future collaborators as you go out into the world. That and like the, you know, the facilities, of course, you get to work on professional equipment. There's a lot of value in figuring things out on your own, but there's also a lot of value in being handed the correct tools and being told the correct way to do it and and skipping a lot of frustrating things and being like, oh, this is when I use this kind of paintbrush, it's so much easier to paint. And now I could actually practice, you know, making good paintings instead of spending months trying to figure out why the brush doesn't do what I think it should do. You know, it's, it's good in a lot of ways. I got a lot of value out of my grad school education for the little bit I was there. I went to undergrad and it was a liberal arts school. And I actually, for me, I really liked that too. So even though it wasn't the conservatory style theater education, you know, I just liked being exposed to a lot of different uh, subjects and topics and, and work, working on my writing and all that sort of stuff. So I, you know, personally had a lot of value out of a liberal arts education, but I think for anybody who's thinking about it, for some people, a conservatory education is absolutely right. For other people, it isn't. For, you know, for some people, a few classes at a very vocational school is all they need. Other people, you know, really, really benefit from a liberal arts education. And so it's, you know, I don't like to say like, this, this is the right way. This is the one way we should do it. It's really all about where you are and what you need and what you want to get out of it. Everyone has their own path, really, to to the industry. And, you know, I think equally in where I've worked, some people have gone to, um, you know, a college education and some haven't. And they've both arrived at the same point eventually. And it just depends on the person's individual learning experience, right? So tell us then about your books. So, you know, what was the motivation to write books about props and, and, and the one that's upcoming? Tell us about those. Sure. You know, as most props people know, there weren't really any books at the time I decided to start writing it. Probably the most up-to-date one was came out in the 80s. It was black and white. It was very out of date. So I, you know, for whatever reason, I thought I should be the one to write it. <laughs> Actually, like looking back, I amazed at my confidence at that moment. But I think it was just I was I I was I was more interested in writing a book about props just for myself. I wasn't really thinking that this would become like the book that everybody uses. I'm like, I just want, you know, all the information I know, you know, I want to figure this all out, collect it all and and write it down and put it down. And so I, you know, it was a, a few year journey. I started a blog first as a way to kind of develop a writing habit and sort of get some thoughts down, figure things out. That actually helped build an audience before the book even came out. So when I approached the publisher at USITT, I'm like, you know, this is who I am. What about a book on props? They, they were actually, it was a focal press at the time. And they were actually looking for a props book because they also did not have any books on props and they were seeing this need for it. So, and then when I, you know, submitted a proposal the the people responding were like, oh yes, we've heard of Eric Hart. He writes about props already. This is great. So the first book was about, I really wanted a book about how props are built in a professional shop. So uh, all my experience working in different professional shops combined with talking with props people all over the country to sort of figure out like 
of professional practices, how prop shops are set up, all the different materials and techniques you use, because there were, there's always been a lot of kind of props books for amateur theatricals. So very much like, hey, why don't you figure out how to do this in your garage sort of thing, which I wanted to avoid. So it was like, this is, you know, prop shops usually have a table saw, usually have a chop saw, often have a spray booth. You know, these are, this is what they use. These are the correct terms for all the materials. These are, you know, the different machines that are available just for anybody who would get a job in a professional prop shop. So they're not like lost when somebody goes, asks them to go grab, you know, a speed square and they're like, what is that? So yeah, that came out and, and was a big hit, uh, which I was really happy about. And then thinking about a next book to do, because this one was all about building. I thought all the effects, you know, uh, that would be a good sort of, it, it wouldn't cover the same ground. It would be different. Um, but still useful. And that was, it was much more of a learning experience. So the first book was a, a learning experience because as soon as I started writing it, I realized how little I actually knew and how much I had to learn. And I started for a lot of the photos, I had to work with materials for the first time. And so I'm learning it. So I feel like even though I was a professional props person, when I started writing it, most of what I learned about props, I learned while writing that book surprisingly, <laughs> or at least like I was exposed to so many new things. So the same was true of the effects books, like the, the little effects I had done paled in comparison to what I had to suddenly teach myself to be able to write this book and to learn it and figure that out. So, you know, that was also uh, popular in its own way. It definitely doesn't have as much of a, a broad appeal as the first one. It's much more niche. There's only so many people doing the kind of props effects. But kind of the one, the one complaint I would always get with my first book was from people who wanted a really kind of beginner's text with step-by-step -step projects. And I always avoided that because part of props is there are no step-by-step. -step. Everything you build will be built completely differently depending on what where you are and who you are you can't say this is how you build you know an, an 18th century uh, inkwell because the next time you build it you're going to have to build it out of something else you know because the next time you build it it's going to have to fall and not break or you're going to have to build it so it does break it's absolutely different all the time so i'm like well i can't do that with my book but there's a lot of people who want this and who are approaching props from a much more beginner uh, level. So I thought about like what what could be a good kind of beginner props book that had step-by-step -step instructions. So I kind of came up with uh, 20 items that have step-by-step -step instructions. And I picked items that you would probably find in a lot of plays and that weren't things you could just go out and buy. So if you're the, uh, you know, you're the TD at a small theater and you're 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 the one that they get to build props, but you don't know anything about props. You could grab this book and be like, oh, this is how I uh, build a crate or an upholstered footstool or a skull. Or if you're uh, in high school or something, I've had a lot of uh, teachers who are really excited about the book because it gives them projects to give their students. Because again, you're the technical theater teacher at a high school. You're good at lights and sound and they want you to teach everything. 
including costumes, including props. And you're like, what do I do at the props uh, unit of my class? So here's some projects. So it was an interesting challenge and a lot of fun because I had to build these 20 different things and figure out what I was going to build. I tried to do it so that if you do all 20 projects, you actually get a good overview of all the skills you would need. So it's not the same type of skill over and over. It's different materials uh, that you would use. So if you actually do go through the whole book, you've done painting and gold leafing and sewing and uh, carpentry and sculpture and you know paper mache and all this sort of stuff. So coming up with the projects and doing them, and they're all cheap, easily accessible materials. So stuff you could get at the grocery store, the hardware store, or a craft store. Nothing specialty, nothing that you would have to order necessarily. Mostly pretty green products, a lot of paper-based products and wood, and mostly really safe uh, uh, materials as well. I think the the heaviest solvent I have is like rubber cement for a few projects. And also you don't need uh, too many tools to use them as well. It's basic like scissors, cutting mat, that sort of thing. And it was really, really fortuitous because the pandemic hit right in the middle of when I was writing this book. So luckily I could build all the props on my dining room table and continue writing the book. (laughs) (laughs) because I didn't have access to a shop anymore. So uh, that worked out really well. So it's really like it's tested as well. If somebody goes, can I build this in my, you know, on my dining room table? I'm like, yes, because I did. I did. I had an area this big and I had kids running around and cats jumping up and I was still able to build this. You know, I was able to work on this while everybody's asleep and I'm not running power tools and waking everybody up. I'm not, you know, gassing everybody out of the house with a bunch of spray paint fumes you know (laughs) that's amazing though because you know you've you've thought about many factors in in terms of your choice of those props and and how they might be green or anything but I also think it's particularly interesting to see somebody who can take their craft and then break it down and teach it because not everybody has that skill set you know and so I mean by you writing your books and then also now doing a step-by-step you're working on the the skill set of its own to communicate that. And um, was that something that sort of you say you put a lot of work into it? I think that, you know, it's it's you trying to communicate something that, you know, becomes it's probably very innate in you, you know, okay, I'm going to go find this glue or this thing. But you've got to be like step one, <laughs> get this, step two. Is that, do you enjoy that process? Yeah, it was, it was like... Uh a challenge I wasn't really expecting. But when I started writing it, I realized when I build props, if something starts going awry, or I figure it out as I build. So I'll be like, oh, and then I'll grab this and I'll fix that, that I did. So since this is step by step, I can't do that. I have to, everything has to be prescribed. I can't like in the middle of it all of a sudden go out and grab like 10 new tools and fix this thing that you should have figured out the first time. So in some cases I had to, I, I rebuilt props. I would build it the first time through, learn like what happens as I build it and fix it. So I, it was simpler or it, you didn't require these uh, adjustments as I went. In some cases, like I built a, a some of the props I built a few times, it just wasn't working. I was like, this is, I can't, have somebody do this. This isn't working. I can barely figure this out. Uh, Or just really kind of plan it ahead, which is something that you so rarely do because you're often just 
building on the fly and you're fixing things and you're adjusting as you go. And in the end, you know, the, the project works, but in this case, it's like, I, you know, I need a, a cut list at the beginning with the exact measurements and that has to be true for the whole process. And I need a list of the tools and materials you need. And I can't add to that as I go. I can't just like, I mean, I could walk over and like, I'm just going to grab this little rod of nylon that I have in my scrap bin. It's like, they're, you know, buying it from scratch. So it, it, it all has to be there. My, my, I think like once you you release the book and you have all your pictures and we need to start like a Pinterest page. You know how people do the Pinterest version of the cake and then them attempting to uh, do yeah. the cake? <laughs> we need to do that. Eric's yeah. version of the prop and my version of the prop. <laughs> I know. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing people build these props and seeing how they turn out. <laughs> It'll probably, I'll probably be the one with the disastrous looking one, that's for sure. <laughs> But then you can have Tyler build them because I'm pretty sure he's yeah, no, going to. Yeah, my, my son will be all over that. In fact, it's probably a really good book for him. He would love that. When does it come out? Are you still writing it? It comes out in April. Yeah. I I just this month finished up the last of my my part of the job. So they had laid out the whole book and sent a proof. And so I went through the whole thing, caught any last minute changes. But um, I think it's basically going to the printer as we speak. So what about the podcast? What what with the podcast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the podcast is uh, Silk Flowers and Paper Mache Hearts. I have a co-host, Ashley Flowers. So it's a bit of a play, you know, flowers and hearts. It's funny. She, I, I hadn't met her, but she posted on Facebook a few years ago that she wanted to start a podcast. I always kind of in the back of my head was thinking I would want to start a podcast, but I'm, you know, it might seem weird, but I actually get nervous talking to people and I avoid it as much as possible. So I was never going to get a podcast going by myself. So when I saw she posted that saying, Hey, is anybody interested in maybe co-hosting or something? I kind of jumped on it. because I'm like, well, you know, if, if somebody else starts a props podcast, then I definitely can't start one because then it'll seem like I'm just copying them and I don't want to do that. <laughs> so we kind of uh, got together and started talking and we were, we, we were both on the same page about what we wanted to do. It's like two people talking about props and interviewing different people in the industry because uh, people rarely get to hear what props people have to say and they rarely get to hear the stories every once in a while you see a news story and it's some like kind of you know superficial look at like isn't it amazing that they have to buy all the stuff for the show or isn't it great that they built a chandelier not to put any of that down but they're you know i like listening to podcasts and i was having trouble finding anything that was like specifically uh theater props from the props professionals perspective prop builders prop uh, masters prop managers so we started it and yeah we we were going pretty good and we would take breaks every now and then i think we started in 2018 and then you know once the pandemic started we jumped on it again because everybody's out of work and everybody's available so we were able to get like all sorts of people you know for a couple months we were doing uh, uh, episode every week, having people on. And then again, we're currently on a break now. It just, it, it got to be too much. 
there's like too much going on and everything was kind of depressing for a while. So uh, we're currently on a break. Uh, eventually, I think we're going to start up again. Uh, because again, there's like, there's still so many people to talk to, you know, I have this list of people I want to talk to, and it's just huge. And it's like, I barely scratched the surface, even though we've had some great guests on it and a lot of uh, great conversations. It's, it's like, there's so many people doing so much interesting work and props. You could never hope uh, to talk to all of them about all the projects they've ever done. It's a bit like us because it's endless. There's the endless, you know, we're not just doing props, we're doing like entertainment. So for us, it's like and all around the world. So it's like forever. We've got we've got people forever. There's so many fascinating people in our industry and you being one of them. So in terms of live entertainment, and we talk about props, but you're a part of a bigger community, right? So what's your what's your thoughts on the role of live entertainment? You know, because 2020's been given us a kind of a reset and a and a uh, you know, a lot of people have been in a really bad place in the last 12 months. And how important is that for you and as part of the, the larger community, our culture and arts and society? Because you're obviously teaching that as well and you've got to encourage people to enter this industry and be passionate about that. So your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's ever going to go away. Even theatre itself, people always say it's been dying for the past 4,000 years. It's not going to go away. Obviously, a lot of uh, individual people will leave theater. You know, we're still in the middle of that and it's still uh, very, you know, sad uh, to see people uh, having to leave the industry, shops shutting down, theaters shutting down. But there, it, it will come back. And if anything, this has shown us that there's such a great need for not just live entertainment, you know, just people gathering in groups for specific purposes at, at particular times, which is what a live, lot of live entertainment is. You know, we can listen to music on our headphones, but you're still going to want to go uh, to a, a concert and, and see musicians perform. You could see movies, but you're, you're still going to want to go to the theater to see it. You know, there's, there's just something innate, you know, in, in human nature to want to gather in groups and experience something together. I've always thought even just with movies, you know, you can watch any movie you want on the phone, but uh, people still want to go to the theater and not just go to the theater, but go to the theater when there's a lot of people there. You know, you think about like these blockbuster films, especially like a, a big superhero blockbuster film. I mean, opening night is this event, you know, people look forward to it. People remember it. People's uh, memory of the movie is completely colored by when they saw it and and how they saw it so you know somebody who saw avengers endgame on opening night in costume in a big theater has a completely different memory of that film than somebody who like caught it on netflix while they were kind of dozing off after dinner you know it's even with all the kind of pre-recorded entertainment there's still this uh, great need to to experience it with other people and theater is definitely a big part of that. And I hope, I hope there's a lot of lessons being learned because a lot of us are kind of on a break and we're kind of reset. We're kind of thinking of things that we never had the time or energy to think about. There's certainly, uh, um, you know, like the WCU white American theater has been doing a lot of work, uh, and a lot of community building within themselves and with the larger community to, to 
bring a lot of issues to the forefront that they've been experiencing for a long time and that uh, uh, the rest of us should have been aware of for a long time and are and some of us are just becoming aware of them. But not only that, but issues with like uh, unpaid internships and uh, uh, work conditions and exploitive work conditions. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues that a lot of us are focusing on uh, because we want theater to come back better because there's been a lot of problems in a lot of aspects for a long time. And and we've all just been like, you know, uh, yeah, noses to the grindstone. We can't stop. You know, we can't deal with it right now. You know, okay, designers can't make money. We got to keep going. They got to design more shows than they're capable of designing every year. You know, nobody can get a job. That's okay. Let's keep going. Just take an unpaid internship and figure it out later. Don't worry about uh, diversity. We're doing a, you know, we do an African American show in February. You get to be on stage for that. That's it. That, uh, you know, all sorts of issues. I, I worry a little bit because uh, it'll probably not happen <laughs> to the extent we want it to. But I have hope because so many people are putting energy into working towards it that uh, uh, maybe it will happen. You know, uh, it remains to be seen. I think it's a little bit of a conversation we've had on terms of, okay, this is the utopian world we would like to have. But once we're faced against the reality of we need jobs and finally there are jobs available, how how true are we going to respond to what we're proposing? Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have left the industry, but we also have a lot of people who have not entered the industry yet. So I'm sure as jobs become available, they're going to be uh, flooded with people. and there will certainly be lots of people who want to, you know, who are able to take the jobs at lower pay. So yeah, I think you're right. It's <laughs> we can be optimistic, but there needs to be like larger system systemic change. Um, that could be tough, but I am, you know, I am hopeful uh, when we're recording this, you know, tomorrow's inauguration day, there's at least uh, a talk of some major things that could potentially happen. Uh, a minister of arts and culture in the country for the first time ever. I didn't know the U.S. didn't have that. No, we do not. We don't have anything. <laughs> uh, that's, I, that's a, wow. Do you know, Anna? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, we have, we, yeah, we don't have that. Our national endowment for the arts was basically gutted back in the 90s because conservatives didn't like uh, photographs that were being, you know, sponsored by the NEA. So they basically cut all the funding. Actually, down in North Carolina and Charlotte, they did a production of Angels in America at that time. And uh, the city, rather than continuing to fund them, cut all arts funding just to avoid ever having to fund anything like that again. And that's, you know, across the board, definitely in the 90s, they just stopped funding art completely uh they chopped the budget by i think 80 percent, and it's never recovered um so there's no government government support of the arts at at a level that it needs but there's actually been you know there's talk no plans but there's talk of like actually having a wpa style program once biden takes over or at least you know again a minister of arts and culture some like massive uh top down 
funding and support for all these different groups that have been scraping by for, you know, 30, 40 years using college students because that's the only place that you could actually get funding is at colleges and universities. And that's why every designer, at least adjuncts, if not teaches full-time because that's the only place they could get healthcare. Mm. It's fascinating because, you you know, when you're thinking about evolving arts and, and the culture and entertainment, you realize when you start to dig into that, how the fabric of the society and infrastructure and government and, 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 the value that is in the community, how that can drastically affect its growth and development. Um, so what you're saying to us now is really quite, you know, obviously I'm not American, so I'm not familiar with the history of that, but it's interesting to see, you know, look at why things are the way they are and, and you know, how something like a minister for arts and culture could could affect profound change in, in, in the American uh, arts community. So hopefully, fingers crossed. Yep. Fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) What do you like most about your job, Eric? Um, I think it goes back to the endless uh, variety that I get to work with. Every project is, is, is a chance to do something new. Even if it's something I've done similar before, I always try to think of something, some twist to bring to it, something new to try out. It could be a new tool or new material I've never used or just like a, a technique I've seen because, uh, uh, you know, that it's like endless techniques. You go on Instagram and you see a quick little video and you see somebody like holding something a certain way and you're like, oh, oh what are they doing? Uh, I want to do that. And just uh, an endless variety of things to build as well. You know, I think outside of theater, one of my favorite things to do is like museums and walking around and just seeing the endless variety of things that have ever existed, especially like objects and, and things people use. So being able to try to build those things and, and, and work on them. Um, uh, it's one of the reasons I don't think I'll ever get out of props because I can't imagine any other job where you have to deal with, with that kind of stuff you know, working with your hands, working at the computer, working, standing up, working, sitting down, working, lying down inside, outside, in a shop, in your home. Uh, uh, It's always changing. Where can the audience uh, get your books or see what you write, listen to a podcast? Sure. My my books are sold everywhere. uh, So you can get them on Amazon or order them from any book. I like to suggest people order them from their indie bookstore, that their local indie bookstore, um, or you could buy it directly from the publisher. They're they're always having sales and free shipping, and they ship pretty quick. So it's uh, uh, Rutledge is the uh, publisher. All my stuff is kind of at my website. It's eric-hart.com, and and from there you could go to my blog. Uh, hasn't been updated too much recently, but uh, um, again. Hopefully, and uh, my podcast is there as well, and that's Silk Flowers and Paper Mache Hearts dot com, and that could be found on like Apple, iTunes, and uh, Google Play, and and all the kind of podcast services. Cool. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Eric. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. 
Theater Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theater Art Life, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theaterartlife.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theater at Life podcast.